Welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. How do we navigate the challenges of research funding while at the same time trying to promote a collegial culture that values well-being that's for the good of science and scientists and society? This episode is an extract from a recent conversation for another academic-related podcast called Beyond Phrenology. The host is Dr. Madhuram Mangalam from the University of Nebraska at Omaha. And the trigger for him contacting me was an old TEDx talk I gave in 2016 on the craziness of research funding. So prior to this extract, we had been discussing the challenges around research funding and so on. And here we move more to positioning the funding issue into a broader context of research culture. And we discuss themes that you will have often heard me talk about If you're interested in the full episode, I'll include the links in the show notes. This extract comes from the second half, starting at around one hour and nine minutes. So enjoy this. And you might find other episodes in Madhu's podcast of interest as well. So right now we are in a situation where funding levels have not increased overall, right? Compared to how many researchers we are, proportionately funding has not increased, right? So it's kind of a like an oil well, which is depleting. And now you have to burn more oil to get that oil from it, right? So your overall yep. productivity is going down. Yeah. Number of papers are rising, but definitely not the productivity in proportion. Yeah. Right. So do you think this will be sustainable in the long run? I mean, no. how far can we stretch this system? No, it's not sustainable. And one of my particular concerns is when it's ultimately not sustainable for doing good science, for solving the hard problems that we have right now that we were just talking about. And it's not sustainable for human beings. One research study, and I can't remember now who wrote it, but talk about academics having a higher level of stress and burnout than the general population. And that's just getting worse. So we're burning out human beings and our best brains who we want to be working on these problems are getting into these really stressed states of on the treadmill where they're not actually able to produce the good work and yeah. they're just producing you know, churnouts of proposals and papers. And that's a human impact which has a science impact and a societal impact and yeah. Yeah, it's not sustainable, which is why I'm very concerned about not so much the funding, the funding just being, I don't know, both sort of a driver and a, and a, a symptom of why we need to shift to more collegial support of cultures that value well-being, that recognise the diversity of individuals, that recognise what's needed for people to bring their best selves to work and to be at their most creative, most collaborative it needs a different skill set than what we're training people for right now. Wow. Uh, Peter Thiel has an interesting quote, right? Uh, where he talks about that we wanted to have flying cars and we got like a 140 character to in terms of what we expected the technology will bring and what it actually brought. So he also talks about, you know, in the same kind of conversations that 
we have a system, we have set up a system where we are not selecting scientists, we are selecting good grant writers. Mm. Uh, so, so there's good an actual selection. Good game players, you can say. Good, <laughs> good game players, players. yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, even from a personal experience. Yeah, mm. exactly. And we should be selecting people who are good at knowing themselves and what they bring. We should be selecting people who are good at empathy and compassion and being able to work with other people. We should be selecting people who have good leadership skills, who have yeah. good interpersonal skills, who are um, able to live with uncertainty, you know, because research is fundamentally uncertain. But how do we do that? Because those are the things you cannot quantify mm-hmm. and no. have a number for that, right? No, no. And that's one of, it doesn't fit in a spreadsheet. It doesn't and fit in a spreadsheet, yes. Yep. And I know that some people are starting to include questions in interview protocols for promotions or job applications that might be about, tell us about your leadership skills or, you know, like a collaboration that worked. And again, we can game the system. But I'd I'd like it part of our training so that it just becomes part of the skill set that we have. Whether that's starting at school, teaching people social emotional skills, emotional intelligence uh, became very popular. Was it in the 90s that Danny Goldman made the concept more popular? Oh, I can't remember what, what the time frame was. But there's been a lot of work done in the interim. And I know that there was a lot of work going on by Salovey and various people before then on this area. But in terms of bringing it into public discourse. I know that there are many, many programs in schools from primary school up that are about teaching kids some of these fundamental skills about how to recognise and manage their own emotions, how to, how to you know, uh, those interpersonal skills and how to manage relationships and how to manage conflict. And there are also a whole lot of skills needed in terms of just dealing with how we structure time, how we look after ourselves as well, and how do we value that. I know that I'm I'm in the middle of marking some assignments. As I said, I'm I'm teaching this PhD course about from surviving to thriving, and one of the things that I got them to do, we've given them lots of tools and resources for different aspects around whether it's knowing your values and strengths because that helps you make choices in how you do your tasks or what career paths you know, might look like at least the qualities even if you know not the label we give them lots of skills about valuing well-being and recognizing how being well isn't a nice to have but is a fundamental requirement for being able to do good science and we do things about how to say no yeah. and manage boundaries so that you can, as part of that, how to build collegial relationships, how to have difficult conversations. And I'm just in the middle of marking the reflective journals that they had as they tried out various tools and techniques. And one thing that just keeps coming up for me is like the students saying again and again, there are so many things here that are so simple, but they make such a huge difference. Why haven't we heard about these before? And so I'm hoping that some of our students who've yeah. gone through this will be starting to be part of the next generation of researchers that will change cultures. 
be part of changing academic cultures, to be more collegial and supportive and collaborative, to recognise individual contributions and diversity in a different way beyond just notions of gender and race, which are very important, but yeah, diversity is much more than that, especially for the purposes of science. Um, we also have a leadership development course with um, Austin Rayner from Bel yeah, Belfast, uh, Queen's Belfast, that we run for Informatics Europe. And that's trying to teach academics about how to do leadership in a different way. Because again, we're never taught about how to do leadership, how to be leaders. Right. You know, we we may be sent on training courses about how to manage the budgets in the university system or how to write a grant proposal. Yeah. There are many courses on that. Uh, uh, but not taught about no. those. No, their leadership still is uh, their their leadership uh, role is like this, you know. Like if I have got this funding, let's say like 500k or a million dollar from the public funds and I'm hiring a postdoc for PhDs, I am paying your salary. So I will dictate the terms. Right? Rather than understanding that you have been just selected as a facilitator of providing yeah. this funding for this human yeah. growth resource development rather than you yeah. being their, you know, their benefactor. Yeah, yeah. So. And there's so much, again, like there's, it, it can get complicated because where, you know, if you're on the tenure track yeah. path, your case for promotion or your case for tenure in three, four years may in large part be dependent upon the outputs of this postdoc or this PhD student yeah. you know, because that's part of the funding Completely. and that's part of what you're going to be judged on. And so that can create a lot of pressures for you where it can play out in not like you don't mean to. Everyone's got good intentions, yes. I believe, generally. I it, yeah. But because you're operating from your own sort of stresses about am I going to tickle the boxes or get enough eggs in my right. basket, you then create a whole lot of pressures on your students and expectations about working ridiculous hours or right. um, having to be perfect or having to drive more and more papers because we can always do one more paper or run one more experiment or or whatever. And that's not the way to develop people. You know, it's not the way to get good outputs. I agree. So I was kind of uh, fortunate to be in a different situation during my PhD. So that was a traditional psychology department where we were funded by DAship. So we used to teach or, you know, be a grad assistant in the faculty. So of course, the DAship was lower compared to, you know, typical stipend if somebody, if a faculty has their own fund, but still it was sustainable. And that allowed us a lot of room because there was no mm. pressure. You could continue your PhD, you know, for a large number of years. And the PI also did not have pressure that they need to get this fund to be, to be able to pay you. So that allowed a lot of room for thought, allowed a lot of room for learning. Yeah. Now, for instance, now I have my first two PhD students and my startup includes two years of salary for both of those. Now, the thing is, I can give them a lot more room, okay, to explore. But I also understand that it will be detrimental for them because if we as a group do not produce pilot data, a good pilot data, and if we are not able to mm -hmm. hit a grant within two years, how will I fund their, you know, the rest I of know. the PhD, right? I know, yeah. So, yeah. because we do not have that kind of a TSA program where I am right now. So, uh, that creates like a lot of pressure and that definitely takes away a lot of flexibility, which they might have had, uh, you know, in a in a more secure setting. Mm. Yeah, I know. And this is where I'm saying it's very complex about having people whose jobs depend on you. And this is where we need different 
employment models in universities, different funding models that allow some longer horizons for people and some continuity. And I, again, I know from a university admin perspective that can be challenging because if if at our university they converted all of our current postdocs on short-term contracts into full-time contracts just to give people some continuity or some you know, confidence for career paths, that would be unsustainable. They don't have the budget. It no. also has implications for space, you know, buildings, you know, like just yeah. desks and uh, minimal requirements of what's needed to for someone to have a healthy workspace. It this is what we we're just saying. It's really it is really complicated. I know that there are no easy solutions. I think we we do need to recognise though the human costs of many of the um, performance measures and research assessment measures that have been in place to date. And are there ways that we can compromise, do a little bit of in-between work? And so I'm really, that the short-term contracts for postdocs and researchers just breaks my heart because I have people in our own lab who don't have permanent contracts and they're great people and, you know, they're trying to work hard on projects and helping put in new proposals to get more funding and they come up to a time limit of how long they're allowed to be employed for as well so there are european laws around that yeah and on, on short-term funding and they also have family commitments so they're not as flexible as some other academics to go okay my six-year, eight-year contract as a postdoc you know, period is limited and I've, I have to leave now so I can move to another country. A lot of people don't have that flexibility and if you're in a town and this is the main university for this area, they're your job prospects. And you know, as a PI or a faculty member, I was also aware of the expertise that we would be losing where you'd spent, there'd been a whole lot of time and people had built up all this expertise right. and were really valuable members and could just hit the ground running and do amazing work. But then they hit against some arbitrary uh, time yeah. limit and we, have to move on. So then you got to right. start again with someone brand new. And I know that's growing, that's growing capacity and stuff, but yeah, again, at what human cost? We do lose a lot of talent from academics. I mean, I have so many talented friends who finally left academia because they would have been okay had they been given a decent salary. Their, their expectation was not too high, but a decent salary to live with the family and yeah. uh, the ability to do research. But yeah. we do not have that model right now. We have The only model we have is like a pyramid PI model. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, or you just keep doing as a postdoc with a soft salary. Yeah. So, so we need like more permanent positions somewhere in between for people who just don't want to do research. Yeah, indeed. At the same time, I also am a big believer. In the beginning, we said about lots of things happen by chance, and you can yeah. you always sort of end up orienting to the same sorts of things because that's where you're at your best, or that's what you love doing, or that's what's important to you. And so, I am also really clear in talking to PhD students and postdocs really early from the beginning that academia is not the one and only option. Right. And you can actually be happy in many different career paths. They, they'll all be different. Yeah. They always involve trade-offs. Every 
option involves trade-offs of one sort or another. But that, you know, like if you can really get more clarity about who you are, you know, as we said at the beginning, what you bring, where you're at your best, what are your strengths, what are your values, and um, right. you can find ways of playing those out in multiple different career paths in different ways, in different contexts, with different impacts, but you can still wake up in the morning excited about what you're going to do at work, you know, and a lot of the research suggests that even if we have, I think some of it points to about 20 or 25% of our time at work enabling us to do this sort of stuff that lights us up, that's enough to make it make it work for us. You know, you talked about the bad PhD earlier. No, I agree with you. I, I mean, uh, just because you did not want to that doesn't mean that it doesn't make you a sellout or like, uh, you know, not a capable PhD or, mm. or not a capable yeah. academicians. Like, yeah. uh, academic success has a lot to it than just being like a good researcher. Yeah. And uh, one of the things I'm also encouraged by in some countries, you know, some institutions is recognizing different sorts of career paths within academia that that some people are brilliant researchers and really not very good in front of the classroom as right. teachers. Other people are really good mentors, facilitators, supporting students and growing people. I work with a colleague who's the most brilliant teacher, he, innovative, excited about what he's teaching, gets yeah. students enthusiastic, does all sorts of interesting things in the classroom that I would never be able to do. It's just not my not my skill set and but not necessarily, you know, brilliant researcher. But shouldn't be and should be recognized and rewarded and have a promotion path, a career path that rewards excellence in teaching or excellence in research or excellence in research management or whatever and there are things happening where that's starting to be accepted more right so do you think uh this like let's say that you know assume let's be optimistic and assume that things will change for good for the system to become more sustainable and also to enrich more early career researchers would it be within the same funding agencies shifting the mandates or would it be or do we actually need interventions where we like at the congressional level, that we have new bodies with a completely different mandate and slowly, you know, kind of depleting these institutions, existing ones of resources and shifting those resources to the new model. So will the change be from the inside or mm. uh, will it be a slow demolishment mm. of the current so uh, establishment? Again, like this is where it's a really complex space because yeah. I... If I just bring it back to my own situation, so it's important to me to say to students, you know, like we don't expect you to work weekends or after hours. You know, we want you to have a life. There's more to life than work. Like th yeah. these are a reasonable number of publications to aim for. So we try to create some sense of balance because we know that if we can create the conditions where people are well, and healthy and have a balanced life, well, not balanced because there's no such thing as balance, but have different aspects in their life. When they come to work, they will be, you know, like all of the research is clear that they will be more creative, better problem solvers, better collaborators, and so on. And so they're likely to produce good outputs. If I'm saying to people, this is good enough, like it's really good enough, you're doing great. Mm -hmm. 
and then they go for they want to go I'm going to pick on the US because I think it's there's a particular culture there now in our area sometimes you even need publications at at key top quality venues to even get into a PhD program oh so uh, literally like this is actually the reality I mean you can't get a PhD scholarship or, or entry to the graduate program yeah. if you don't have obligations. And I don't blame that because when I applied to a grad school, I had eight publications, right? During my master's and two years yeah. of work after my master's. Yeah. So yeah. if I have like a two year of internship after my master's that I published and I had eight, and you have a student, you know, maybe bright, maybe brighter with no output, faculty is inclined to take those who actually yeah. have yeah. publications. No. I know, so, and I know that that's the culture in the U.S. And yeah. so if we're working in a different culture and yeah. we have students coming through bachelor's and master's programs, but there's yeah. nowhere near the emphasis on publications. You know, the occasional master's student, bachelor's right. student may get a publication, especially if they happen to be working on a project that the supervisor set up or some other funded project that they contributed to, but it's not normal. Like most master students, good master students won't have a publication. So they come out of that system and then they go into a PhD program. If they decide they want to go to the US, they're not going to be competitive. If I've got people coming out of PhD where we, you know, like the some of the rules say, some institutions say like three good quality publications is around what we expect. But you know that they want to go to the US for a postdoc and to be competitive there for a postdoc, anyone else in the pool will have 12, 14. And then comes this arms race. About, I had so about 25 plus or around 28 when I was, when I graduated with a PhD. Yeah. And yeah. really, even then, it was very hard for me to find a postdoc. Yeah. It was not everyone took it. I had very few options, yeah. even after that. I can try to change the culture locally and say, you know, like you've got enough, you're going to burn out if you just keep working every weekend to get yet another paper, yet another right. paper, and they're not going to be good quality. And that's why I'm hoping that the push for quality over quantity might stop some of that arms race. But yeah. we're operating in an international culture, so I can do that in my own group. And it may not fit the rhetoric of the faculty. So the faculty may have stronger requirements, you know, and it may not fit the rhetoric of what the national body, the government is putting in place and saying yeah. to the universities they want to evaluate their performance on in order to get the next five-year funding for their budgets. And it may not fit with international context if people want to be mobile because there's a lot of mobility in the academic sector. So I think some of these initiatives like DORA, the San Francisco Agreement, like COARA at the European level may be starting to change, but it's gotta be it's gotta be an international change. And that means multiple levels, you know, like governmental right. levels, funding agency levels, university levels, faculty levels, group levels, individual supervisors. I mean, I mean, there is some, some uh, steps, for instance, when we apply an NIH grant and you apply for an NIH grant, it allows you to put only four different areas of contribution, four or five, and each of those you can list only four publications. So basically you cannot list more than 20 publications yeah. in the whole so gonna, bio sketch, yeah. right? So that kind of controls for, because and then you can look at, are our themes consistent? You know, is it the similar yeah. kind of work or is it just a number of publications which are, you know? Yeah. So likewise no, in grad applications, right? 
In yeah. joint applications, we can have like, you know, in your CV, you actually fill in the CV rather than actually having your own format. Mm-hmm. And you have like, like, you know, maybe your two best publications. Mm-hmm. And you will be evaluated on those two best publications and not at that level for a master's student. And not on like whether you publish like 10 yeah. You're mostly like four so or five with something. That's encouraging. And it would be really good if faculties doing searches for deploying people yeah. did a similar thing. Mm. Uh, but uh, for a person who is like, you know, early career, the only option yeah. that person has is to just go with whatever the system asks. I know. And just yeah. give the deliveries, right? Delivery yeah. with this. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so where do you stand on that? I'm acutely aware of the privileged position that I'm in to be able to speak about these things. I'm also acutely aware of the privilege that I've had in my career trajectory that I have been, I guess, ahead of the wave of a lot of these pressures where I was never, I never felt personally driven by these sorts of pressures. If I was driven, it was more by my own wanting, my own criteria that I put on myself. And I, that's what I was saying before about, you know, like I'm conscious that I might say to a student, you're good enough, you've done enough, it's good work, you know, you're allowed to have other things in your life beyond work. And I know that I might not be doing them a favour in setting them up for different career paths if they want to go to the US and and everyone else has got 28 publications. So for me, it's about helping them understand what the trade-offs are. And it can be that you choose to play the game now in order to get to there and then be part of trying to change the dialogue. I think that people who are more senior in their careers have a real responsibility to step up and be part of the conversation and just call out some of these practices and some of the gaming practices and and arguing for different ways of of engaging running their labs in different ways I don't know it's just it's not about all these brownie points that we get it's not what's important in life and, right. you know, and the that usual you... thing of when you get to your deathbed, are you gonna you're gonna be saying, "Oh, if only I had have got that journal paper published." You're not gonna be saying that. And That's true. How do we just keep it in perspective? And how do we give people a decent living that allows them to make good choices? So I think that senior people got a responsibility. I think in in mentoring and and supporting younger people making clear the values that you hold as important, helping them navigate and understand the trade-offs. And in the middle of that, I'm a big believer in this concept of job crafting, which I sort of alluded to before, which is if you are having to play the game because this is where you're at and you recognise that you know the change that we want to see is going to be further on beyond yep. when you're going to be needing to have your next career steps, are there ways of making more intelligent choices yeah. where you can still play the game but you're making choices that are much more aligned with your own values yeah. and what's important to you, where you're making choices on research topics or projects that connect to your strengths, connect to your values, and right. work on things that you care about because you can still get the outputs but there'll be outputs that you'll be prouder of. Yeah. So you can still aim to play the game, 
but can we find ways to shape and craft our research identities? Again, I just did a, a, a podcast on this. The last one I put out was about trying to navigate that tension of research identities and how to play the game while still being true to who we are. And part of that is finding out about who we are, like what is my research identity and how do I step into that and being clear about the compromises that I'm prepared to make right now. As we've said, everything's a complex space. And so I'm, I'm trying to be part of changing the conversation and the culture in the small spheres of influence that I, I might have. And I, you know, yeah, I always say to people, what are the small things we can all do to be part of that change? We can all be part of changing academic life for the better. Yes, I hope so too. Mm. So thank you, Professor Chadwick. Have a great day ahead and we look forward to having you once again when we have more risks. And that was an edited extract from the interview with Madhur Mangalam that he did with me for his Beyond Phonology podcast. I made mention about our academic leadership development courses. And if you're interested in being part of that, and you are listening before March 7, that's March 7, 2024, you might be interested in signing up for the next iteration of the online academic leadership development course that Austin Rayner and I co-facilitate for Informatics Europe. It'll be starting later in March, and I'll put a link to this in the show notes. We put an emphasis on the course in developing the social and emotional skills that are a key part of being a good academic leader, developing people and creating collegial cultures. So join us in being part of creating the change we want to see. You can find the summary notes, a transcript and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com. You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes, Spotify and Google Podcasts. And you can follow Change Acad Life on Twitter. And I'm really hoping that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently. And you can contribute to this by rating the podcast and also giving feedback and if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues. Together, we can make change happen.